All right. Good morning, church. It's great to see you. Uh, my children in the room, if you're a child in the room, raise your hand, raise it high, shake it around so we can see you. Can we uh, welcome our children one more time? Give them a huge round of applause. Awesome. Kids, we're so glad that you're here. Um, parents in the room, like we've already mentioned, um, kids are going to be kids, and that's okay. Uh, my temptation is to come down and be amongst the kids. So I'm going to keep my cool, and you're fine. Don't worry if kids act like kids. Uh, we totally expect that and welcome that in this service. But we do think it is a huge priority um, to have children in the room with the adults, to see mom and dad worship, to see mom and dad lift their hands. Uh, we don't want to wait until a child is 12 or 13 or even 18 before they get faced with the things out in the world. Um, and before they, they hear them talked about and hear what Scripture has to say about them. And uh, we have a great student ministry that if your kids aren't involved in that and kids, kids ministry and all those things. But um, we want to make sure um, that children regularly, um, semi-regularly, regularly get to see mom and dad worship and get to participate in that. And uh, your kids have gifts. If 1 Corinthians 12 is true, um, that we all have gifts and chapter 11 ends with the Holy Spirit gives out the gifts as he wills, that we can't decide what gifts we have, that the Holy Spirit gives those out, and you have gifts that I need, and I have gifts that you need, and our children have gifts that we all need, um, then we want your children in the service uh, to use their gifts. Uh, we're going to have a child read the scripture for us in just a minute um, and use that gift um, so that we can all benefit from it. So um, we're going to do this semi-regularly, and we hope you join us and uh, don't see it as an inconvenience, but see it as an incredible opportunity um, to gather and worship with our kids. And let me just say this, and being down front and then sneaking around the back, you sound awesome. Um, thank you for being a singing church in light of what Christ has done. Um, it's just incredible to hear your voices uh, ring out in this building. So a couple things before uh, Liam comes up here and reads. Um, one of those is that while we have parents and kids in the room, uh, we have our family dedication that's coming up. Um, it's going to be the last Sunday in October. So it's actually a month from this Sunday. Um, and typically what we do is we dedicate um, children up until two years old. But we know with COVID and everything else, things have been nuts um, so we're actually going to do, um, I believe it's five and under. Um, if you want to dedicate your child for a family dedication, that is not um, baptizing them. That is not declaring, um, you know, that they're necessarily saved. What that means is that at you as a parent come alongside um, the church and say, hey, we're committing to growing up um, our children uh, in the gospel, to pointing them to the cross. And we as a congregation want to verbally affirm that we're going to come alongside you as a parent and encourage you and um, point you to the gospel, point you to God's patience as you uh, navigate parenting, um, but then also come alongside and aid you in your parenting and all of those things. So that's October the 30th. If you want to be a part of that um, with your children, then please let Angela know. Um, you can find her in the lobby after the service. You can get a hold of her um, through our website and all those things. And then lastly, um, I'm really excited about this. Um, a month from now, um, the last Sunday in October, that same Sunday, October 30th, uh, we're gonna do dinner out on the patio and do a trunk retreat for the kids. So we wanna let you know about that now because we're gonna eat dinner and we want you to decorate your cars and show up in costume and we'll give out some prizes for the competitive family members in the room. And uh, but we'll have dinner and then we'll do some fun for the kids um, out back. So. Mark your calendars for that. We want you to know about that. But we're going to dive into the scriptures. So if you've got a Bible, open it up to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew 9 is where we're going to be. And uh, Liam, if you want to come on up here 
Uh, we're going to get Liam to read it. Yeah, he can bring that with him. That'd be great. Everybody, this is Liam Meggs. How are you? It's good to see you. All right. So are you there? Here, I'll hold it. You can get there. And then uh, Liam's going to read it. But while he's getting ready, if you'll stand uh, where you are uh, for the reading of God's word, that would be great. Do you want me to hold this or do you want to hold it too? I can hold it if you want. Okay, perfect. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. As Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as a long bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of untrunk cloth and an old garment from the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is the new wine put into the old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst and wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But the new wine is put into fresh wineskin and so both are preserved. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Great job, buddy. Awesome. You can have a seat. Okay, so Liam read our text this morning. Uh, we're going to be in Matthew 9, and I want to give you some context for that. And uh, just to kind of give you a lay of the land this morning, um, we're going to have a shorter sermon. And then in light of our anniversary, we've got some updates we want to give you. And uh, we're going to stream Pastor Will in to give some of those updates. And then uh, we're going to have lunch as a church family after the service and all of those things. So um, just know that that's coming at some point um, after our shorter message, I'll pray. And um, we'll invite Will to be streamed in and all of those things. Um, so... Let's jump into this, and the context of this passage is um, very interesting. If you look up in your Bible um, at Matthew 9, it begins with Jesus healing a paralytic, and after that passage, which is so interesting, and I never noticed this before until this week, um, after Jesus heals this paralytic, as soon as that's over, um, Jesus ends up leaving from there, and he calls Matthew, he calls the tax collector um, to follow him. And in every single one of the Gospels, if you know much about the Gospels, sometimes the order of the stories gets moved around. But in every single of all four of the Gospels, these two stories line up together, where right after Jesus heals the paralytic, he calls Matthew. And what's so fascinating about this is you see in the physical, when Jesus you know, causes the lame to, to get up and walk and to bring to life things that were dead. And you also see the spiritual of that, the mirror image of that happens spiritually with Matthew, where this tax collector who was hated by um, his own friends and family and fellow Jews, he had sold out to go and work for Rome who was oppressing the Jews and he was gonna collect taxes and he was allowed to, you know, collect what Rome needed, but then also collect whatever he wanted on top of that. Um, so he was seen as a traitor. He was seen as someone who walked away from Israel. And you see in the physical what happens when Jesus causes a lame man to rise, and you see the mirror image of that in the spiritual, which we don't have time to dive into all the similarities of that. But here's how this ends. Um, right after that section, um, what Liam just read to us is our second, um, essentially, um, Second moment in Matthew 9 where Jesus is asked why. He's saying, hey, why are, they, why are we fasting and your disciples aren't? 
Well, this isn't the first why that we see in Matthew 9. The first why that we see, that we see the series of two whys where Jesus gets challenged and, que- challenged and questioned, and the disciples um, first ask him, and if you look, um, they ask him in, uh, in Matthew 9, um, sex, the 9 through 13. I want to read it to you. Um, this won't be on the screen, but if you've got your Bible, look at it with me. Um, Jesus passes on from there, and he sees a man um, called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he rose and followed him. And Jesus reclined at the table in the house, and behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, so here's the first why. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Verse 12, and when he heard it, he said, um, so they asked, it was, this is so funny, they asked Jesus' disciples, hey, why is he doing this? And Jesus hears it, and then he just answers the question, right? And he says, those um, who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous but to call sinners. So the disciples are with Jesus and all of these tax collectors and sinners are around, right? Sinners and then worse sinners, according to first century Jews, are all hanging out with Jesus. And the Pharisees go, okay, why is this happening? And what does Jesus say? I didn't come for the righteous. I didn't come for the self-righteous. I came for the sick. And he says something here. He says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And Jesus begins to tell them that, hey, I'm doing something new here. I'm not looking for more outward behaviors. I'm not looking for more sacrifices for the external. I'm not looking for those who think that they're able to fast when you're supposed to fast and follow all the Old Testament customs. I'm not looking for someone who thinks that they've got it all together. I'm not looking for the sacrifices anymore. What am I looking for? Those that know that they're sick those that know that they're broken, those that know they can't keep up all the sacrifices and all the rules, and that there will never be enough rules and sacrifices to win their own salvation. I'm looking for those who desire mercy. That's who I'm after. We're done with the religious game to try to convince other people that you and I are righteous enough. I'm not looking for that anymore. I'm not looking for someone who's able to keep the list and keep up with all the externals. I'm looking for those who know that they can't. Those who would be honest enough with themselves and honest enough with God to admit that they don't have it all together, that they're sinful, that they're broken, and who are in need of not more sacrifices, but mercy. That's what I desire. People who come to me looking for mercy. And it's ironic that he says that because we're gonna see this whole situation play out once again. Because what do the disciples question? Hey, why are they fasting? Why are they, or why are they not fasting? Why have they chosen to not keep up another one of the rules? And Jesus is going to give them the same summary, just in different words. So if you look at it with me in verse 14, here's our next scenario. The disciples of John come to him and they say, why do we and the Pharisees fast? Your disciples do not fast. And now I want to make sure we're all on the same page here. When he says the disciples of John, he's talking about John the Baptist. And John, just like many other rabbis in the first century, um, had disciples. They had learners and followers. 
Um, this, weren't, this wasn't you know, the, the full extent of the word that we think about disciples when we you know, sell out everything and leverage our lives to follow Jesus. But this term simply means just a learner and a follower. And just like many other Jewish teachers, John had disciples. That when he came on the scene in Matthew chapter three, um, John was specifically called by God to prepare the way for Jesus that John's mother, Elizabeth, and Jesus' mother, Mary, were cousins, so they were second cousins, and John was chosen while he was in the womb to prepare the way for Jesus, to go and preach to, the, um, preach to ancient Israel that the Messiah was coming. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And what he's announcing is, hey, everyone, put your focus on the king because the king's finally here. And repent because the king is here Put our trust in the king, follow the king, forsake all else, and leverage your life for the king. So John had these followers, but the problem is, uh, we'll see these followers show up again in Matthew 11 when John um, gets put in prison, John the Baptist gets put in prison, and he sends a message to Jesus by his disciples, but we'll also see them in Matthew 14 when John ends up um, being killed and they end up taking care of John's body. But the problem with all of this is that the disciples of John were supposed to leave John when the greater one showed up, and they were supposed to follow Jesus. And there's lots of speculation as to why John still had followers. Um, most commentators believe, and I tend to hold to this, is it's because in Matthew chapter four, John gets arrested and put in prison. And I guess a lot of John's followers just weren't there the day that John said, hey, there's the king, you go follow him, he's greater than me, I'm not worthy to tie his sandals. They probably missed that meeting, and now John's in prison and can't communicate with them, and they're still following the teachings and the custom of John, but they were supposed to be following and have left John and followed Jesus. So they either didn't get the message, or the scribes and the Pharisees had kind of influenced them and brought them into their fold and said, hey, here's the rules you need to follow, or both. We're not entirely sure, but we do know this, that very pious scribes and Pharisees, ancient Jews, and the disciples of John were instructed to fast on certain days of the week for certain times of the week, and most um, theologians say that that was every Monday and every Thursday you were to fast, and the practice of fast, fasting, children, is to just go without food for a time so that you can show your dedication and devotion to the Lord, so you can have greater intimacy with God. Sometimes it's to mourn your sin, as we'll see in a second. Sometimes it's just to cry out in desperation for more of God in your life. Um, but it had been reduced to this checklist, just like we all had the temptation to do with any of the commands in the scriptures. The scribes and the Pharisees and even John's disciples had reduced this practice to gain more intimacy and to walk closer with God to just a checklist. Oh, it's Monday we fast again. Why do we do it? Because it's Monday, right? And they've lost the heart of the very practice. Every Monday and every Thursday, they fast. And what's so interesting about this is if you, we don't know this from the text, but if you wanted me to give you a guess on what day this was where the Pharisees are going, why don't they fast? My guess is it was probably a Monday or a Thursday because the scribes and the Pharisees show up and they're hungry and they look at Peter and he's on like his second round of halibut and they're going, what's, how is this fair, right? They're Jews, we're Jews, they follow a rabbi, we follow a rabbi, it's Thursday, I'm hungry, why aren't you fasting like we are? And we don't know, you know, that that's exactly how it happened, but if you want my guess, that's probably how it went down. So they're asking, why can't we eat? 
We're hungry. Why aren't you doing what you've been told? And in fact, Mark's gospel, this story actually shows up again in Luke chapter five. Um, Luke records this account in Mark chapter two. So if you wanna make a note in your Bible, um, you can cross-reference this with Luke five and Mark two. But Mark tells us in Mark two, verse 18, um, that John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. So chances are it's a Monday or a Thursday. And they're getting frustrated, they're getting hangry, and they're going, hold on. Why aren't you following the rules? Why aren't you keeping this up? Do you not love God? God's not gonna love you if you don't keep this checklist. What's going on? So what does Jesus say? He hears this just like he did before. They asked the disciples, and Jesus hears this, and he says this. Look at his response. He gives us a lot in his response. He says, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken from them and then they will fast. So there's a lot of things happening here. They say, hey, why aren't they you know, fasting? Why can't we eat? And then Jesus starts talking about a bridegroom and all these kind of things. So we need to see what he's saying here. First, he calls his disciples wedding guests. He says, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? So Jesus is referring to himself as the bridegroom and he says, hey, my disciples are the wedding guests. And it's interesting that he does this because remember his audience, he's talking to the disciples of John. Now, what's fascinating about this is John actually used this bridegroom language as he was teaching his followers. And I wanna show it to you. This will be in John chapter three. Um, we'll probably pick up, or I'll just read it to you real quick. Um, it'll be on the screen. But look at what John the Baptist was saying about Jesus. He says this, after this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside and he remained there with them and was baptizing. That's why we call him John the Baptist. The literal translation just means John the baptizing one or John the baptizer um, because John was known for baptizing people as they repented um, because the kingdom of heaven was coming. So he says this in verse 23, John was also baptizing um, at Anon near Salem because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized for John had not yet been put in prison. We know that that's coming soon in Matthew 4. John will be put in prison. And it says this. Here's where I want you to see this in verse 25. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, talking about Jesus, he's baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. I'm not the Christ. I'm the one sent before him to prepare the way. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. And there's that phrase. And he's saying, hey, I'm not the Christ. I'm not the bridegroom because I don't have the bride. But the bridegroom is here and he is coming for his bride. The friend of the bridegroom, that's who John is referring to as himself, essentially the best man. I'm the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him. So I'm the one standing next to the bridegroom, preparing the way for the bridegroom. And that phrase bridegroom just means our English word groom. That's what he's talking about here. He's the groom, he's here for the bride. And John says, hey, I'm the friend of the groom. I'm, I'm the best man. I'm the one next preparing the way, serving the groom. And he says this, the friend of the bridegroom, talking about himself, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. And he who comes from above is above all. 
He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way, talking about himself, but he who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God sent utters the words of God, for he gives the spirit without measure. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the son shall not see life, but but the wrath of God remains on him. So John made it very clear to his audience, to his teachers, I'm not the groom because I haven't been given a bride. I'm not from heaven. I don't speak the words of heaven. I don't give out the spirit, but he does. And he's the one that needs to increase. I must decrease. So Jesus plays along with this language when he says, they're going, hey, why aren't you fasting? And he says, the wedding guests, can they mourn as long as the groom is with them? The days will come when the groom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. So this phrase of the bridegroom that Jesus introduces was not new to them, but it's also not new to the Bible. That all throughout the Old Testament, God himself, Yahweh, refers to himself as the groom. We see this in Ezekiel, we see this in Isaiah, we see this in Hosea, we see this in Jeremiah, that all throughout the Old Testament, God refers to himself as the groom, and Israel specifically, but more generally, the people of God are his bride. And what's the story of the Old Testament? That God is steadfast in his love and gracious, and his bride is unfaithful over and over and over and over again. We see that in Hosea, we see that in Jeremiah, the beginning of Jeremiah. God goes to Jeremiah and says, hey, call out to the people to repent and no one's gonna listen to you. Like he just tells them how it's gonna go before Jeremiah even sets out on his journey. Go and preach to the people to repent and no one's gonna give you the time of day because we are an unfaithful bride. But Jesus is announcing, he's claiming this language that was you know, traditionally given to God, given to Yahweh. And Jesus says, I'm the bridegroom. Essentially, this is a messianic announcement. I'm here, I'm the groom. I'm the one who's come for the bride. But then Jesus also gives us a glimpse into fasting. And we talked about this. What's the purpose of fasting? The purpose of fasting is so that we would um, go without something, go without food typically, to create more dependence and more hunger, not for food, but for God, for spiritual food. That we would have more intimacy with God as we um, kind of abstain from earthly nourishment, realizing that, hey, I'd rather have God's spiritual nourishment in this moment than earthly nourishment. It's, it's creating a desperation within ourselves. It's instead of circumstances creating need for us, it's saying, hey, I'm going to intentionally create need in my schedule so that I'll run to God out of hunger and desperation for who he is. I wanna know him more, I wanna spend time with him more, but it's not this checklist. It's not a vending machine transaction where if you fast and pray, then God gives you what you want. No, it's I fast and pray because I want more of him. I wanna know him more. I wanna spend more time with him. So what Jesus is saying here, I've been fasting also before we move into this, is um, traditionally in the Old Testament, a sign of repentance. That when Jonah goes to Nineveh and calls Nineveh um, to repent, the king of Nineveh, the leader of Nineveh, calls for a nationwide fast, that they would mourn over their sin because a holy God has declared them sinful and they knew they were and they wanted to repent and turn back to the God of Israel. So you've got these people who mourn. Um, Jesus fasted. Jesus isn't against fasting. He fasted in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights before he started his ministry. Why did he do it? To grow in intimacy with the Father. 
to spend time with the Father, to rely on him for his nourishment and his strength as he is preparing to start his ministry. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives instructions to those who are listening about fasting. So he's not anti-fasting, but the scribes and the Pharisees had totally missed the purpose of fasting. The bridegroom is there. The Messiah, the King of Kings, he's there in the flesh and they're going, hey, why aren't you fasting so you can get to know God? And Jesus is saying, why would they? Because I'm here. They can just talk to me. They don't need to fast. I'm here in the flesh. If they wanna get to know me better and be more intimate with me, they just talk to me and come to me and share with me. He's saying, they don't need to fast. Why? Because the groom's here. And the wedding guests don't mourn while the groom's here. And he's gonna tell us there's gonna be an appropriate time to fast, but it's not right now. You're going through your religious system You're just checking a box so that you think God might be pleased with you when God is literally there in the flesh and you can just talk to him and spend time with him. And Jesus says the wedding guests don't need to fast because the groom's there. They can come and talk to me and grow in their friendship with me and their relationship with me and their intimacy with me. They don't need to fast yet. There will be a time. The days will come when the groom is taken away. And early on in Jesus' ministry, right here, we see him talking about and predicting the fact that he will be taken away, that he will be taken, he will be arrested, he will be tried, he will be falsely accused, he will be found guilty, and an innocent man would go to the cross. He would not be a victim. He says, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down on my own accord, and he would willingly be arrested and misrepresented and beaten and tortured and go to the cross for his bride. He is the first husband who laid down his life for his bride, which is why in Ephesians 5, this is the model for us as husbands to, as we interact and reflect this great love to the world and how we love our wives. But Jesus says, no, there's gonna be a time when the groom is taken away and then we will fast. So if you wanna know, is this the appropriate time to fast? Yes. Why? Because the groom is not with us physically in person. Now, he has given us so many things that we'll talk about. He's given us his spirit and all of those things. But now we do fast. We do encourage fasting to grow in your intimacy with the Lord. Why? Because he's not here. Well, you can argue that there won't be any fasting in heaven. Why? Because there will be feasting. Because the groom will be with us in person. And we will dwell with him and we will get to be with him and we will get to be in awe of his majesty and his glory forever and ever and ever one day. But Jesus says, that time is not yet. I'm here in person. They don't need to be fasting. If you're just trying to do this to check off a to-do list and ease your conscience and practice your religion so that God might love you more, you're missing the point. I desire mercy. I desire those who know they're sinful and long to be with me, not more sacrifices, not more outward external religion. We'll see in just a second that that could never save us, that will never save us. The only thing that can save us is Jesus Christ and what he's done for us on the cross. And this is what Jesus is trying to get them to understand. So he gives them the appropriate time to fast, which shows us that these disciples of John and the scribes and the Pharisees did not see Jesus for who he really was. Instead of celebrating the fact that the groom is here for the bride, We're gonna keep up our religious game to ease our conscience and to make ourselves feel good and to keep up a good reputation in the community that we've got it all together. And I'm gonna be honest, and I'm not directing this statement at anybody, 
But this room is large enough where some of you, that might be the reason that you're here, is, hey, I'm gonna go to church to check the box because I want people in the community to think I'm a good person and I want God to be pleased with me today. And let me just tell you, that's religion. That's trying to earn God's love with your actions and your behavior. That's not gospel. That's built on these conditional promises. And the problem with that is you and I can never keep up the conditions. We can never be good enough. There's not enough sacrifices. There's not enough birds out there for us to take and to put on the altar for us to cover our sin. We will fully and repeatedly keep on sinning. We just will. It's in us. It's deep within us. We sin by nature and by choice all the time. It is a problem that you and I can't solve with a behavior. And Jesus is going to tell us that. Look at what he says in the next sentence. He says this in verse 16. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and the worst tear is made. And what he's talking about here is if you've got a shirt or a cloth or a garment that's worn out, you don't take a new piece of cloth that hasn't been worn, that's new and strong, and you don't tape a new piece of cloth to a hole in an old garment. Because as the old garment or the new cloth shrinks or gets wet, that it's just gonna tear the old garment because the new garment hasn't been shrunk and hasn't you know, been worn out. So as it begins to wear, it's just gonna make the, the original hole even bigger. You don't take new cloth and patch an old garment. You just don't do it. What does he say? For the patch tears away from the garment and a worse tear is made. It would be better to take an old patch and put it on an old garment that's already worn and it's not gonna shrink and those kind of things. And what Jesus is saying here is that you and I don't need a religious pep talk. We don't need a religious patch job. That's not what Jesus came to do. And that might be why you attended today. And I say this with zero guilt. I'm not thinking of anybody in the room. But if the reason you come to church is to get a little tune-up from God, let me get a couple of tips so that I can be a better person this week and then he'll love me, then you've missed the gospel. Jesus did not come to give us a religious patch job. He didn't. When you are drowning, you do not need swimming lessons, right? You don't need someone to come alongside you and say, hey, your stroke is a little off. If you just fix this, you might last a little long. No, right? Yeah, you might improve your ability a little bit. I might give you a couple tips today and you'll go out and you'll you know, last for two or three days and here's three more tips this week and go and try those and we come back next week and we already forgot what they were and we've already failed at them again. He did not come to give us a patch job. When you're drowning, you don't need better form and better technique. You need a rescue. You need a lifeboat. And Jesus says, no, I came for those who know that they're drowning, metaphorically, children. I came for those who know that spiritually they can't make it. They can't keep up the game. They can't keep swimming. That they need something greater than that. I didn't come to put a patch job on your sins. I came to bring you to new life. I came to rescue you while you were drowning. And then he says this again in verse 17. He says, neither is new wine put into old wine skins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wine skins and so both are preserved. And he's, he's using the same illustration here, just with different tools. What he's talking about here is that wine in those days would be put in these animal skin containers. That's what a wine skin is. They would make these, um, essentially these containers out of animal skins. 
And you would put wine in the animal skin and new wine, um, because of the contents of wine, would expand and would create pressure inside of um, these wineskins and the wineskins would grow and they would expand. But then after the wine was done fermenting and it expanded, it would harden. And then you've got this hard container, this wineskin for the wine that's been protected and preserved. And what Jesus is saying here is once you've got these skins and you pour the wine out, you don't take this old, hard, already expanded wineskin container and put new wine in it and fill it up. Why? Because that new wine is going to expand. And when this new wine expands, it's going to burst and break this old, you know, very secure and already expanded and, you know, solid, dried, hard wineskin. You don't put the new stuff in there that's going to expand. Why? Because it bursts and then you lose the wineskin and you lose the wine. So what do you do? New wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. And what Jesus is talking about here, and here's the point, Jesus is not simply bringing a revised or updated version of the law. Jesus is announcing in this moment, when it comes to mercy and sacrifices, he's saying, I did not come here to give you another list of rules. I didn't come here to give you a revised version of Judaism. I am doing something new and you don't put this new wine that I'm bringing and that I am in the old system, in the old container, because it won't hold. But I wanna make sure we see this in Luke's account, in Luke chapter five, I believe it's verse 39, Luke tells us that the old wine and the old wineskins are good. And I want us to hear that. Jesus isn't saying that the old covenant and the old testament was bad. He's not saying that it wasn't good. No, it is good. It served its place. The problem is we all try to treat the law and use the law in a way that it was never meant to be used. It was meant to be good, but we often use the law as a ladder to try to work our way up to God instead of an x-ray. And the law of God, the Old Testament, was meant to be an x-ray, not a ladder. But we try to use it in a bad way. And Jesus says, no, it was good for what it was meant to do. It was never meant to save you. It was never meant to be a ladder for you and I. If we could just obey the rules enough, then we get God. No, the law wasn't a ladder. The law was an x-ray. And x-rays can show you a lot of things. They can show you that you're broken. They can show you where you fall short. And that's what God's law was meant to do. And Jesus says, that I'm coming to bring something new. And the law is good, it served its place. The old covenant is good as long as it was used for what it was meant to do. It was meant to be an x-ray. It was meant to reveal our problems and our issues, but it was never meant to heal them. When I have a broken bone, I don't fix it with an x-ray, right? An x-ray reveals where it's broken, but it can never heal it. And Jesus says that's the purpose of the law. The law, you obeying enough and being a good enough person and keeping up with the Joneses enough was never meant to save you. That God's perfect and holy standard, which is what the law is, it's God's holiness, it's God's righteousness written on a page. It's perfection. And it was never meant to save you. It was meant to show you that you're broken. It was meant to show you that you're not perfect. It was meant to show all of us that we can't measure up to that standard. It was meant to reveal our brokenness, but it was never meant to heal it. And Jesus says, you need something new to come and fix what's broken. And I'm bringing something new. I'm bringing new wine. And you don't put new wine in the old system. The old system is good. 
if you use it for what it was meant to be used for, but we need much more than a new list of rules. We need much more than a patch. We need much more than a ladder or some good advice or here's three tips for you to go and be a better Christian this week. No, we need a savior. We need a substitute. We need someone to meet the standard of perfection in our place. And Jesus says, I'm the one. I'm the new wine. I'm here. Ironically, it's the same miracle that Jesus performed in John chapter two. <clears throat> when Jesus shows up on the scene and <clears throat> you know, his mom is telling him, hey, they're running out of wine at this wedding. And Jesus is like, woman, you know, why are you talking to me? And then she's, <laughs> she looks at the servants and she says, just do what he tells you to do, right? Like just knowing that she's the mother and Jesus is gonna obey. And what does Jesus do? He takes these water jars that were meant for washing, that were meant for ceremony, that were meant for purification, for us to clean ourselves up before God. And what does he do? He takes these water jars for purification and he instantly turns them into new wine, the best wine. And what he's saying here is that you and I can't clean ourselves up enough to be good enough for God. What you need is blood to be shed. You need pure blood. You need um, the perfect spotless lamb of God who would come and he would shed his blood for our purification. We need someone to do for us what we can never do for ourselves. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. And if you've never heard the gospel before, here's the gospel. <clears throat> is that Jesus Christ is the groom and just like Israel was an unfaithful bride, so are we. That you and I, we are unfaithful. We cannot keep up God's law. And if you don't even know God's law to keep it up, Romans 2 says that God's put his, he's given us a conscience that bears witness to God's law, that even if you've never grown up in church, you know um, just internally that some things are good and some things are right and some things are wrong and some things are evil. And that's God, God's um, given you a conscience and it bears witness that he's even written his law in our hearts. And you might not have even been able to obey God's law, but here's the, the, the problem is even without God's law, you and I can't even obey our conscience. We can't obey God's law that he's written on our hearts. That you and I have standards that we can't even keep up for ourselves. We have internal rules and lists that we can't even maintain. And that's the gospel. Romans 3, there's no unrighteous, no, not one. But what has God done? He has sent someone to be righteousness in our place. He has brought new wine. He has brought a new system. He has brought a new covenant. And the only way we get the new covenant is because someone had to fulfill the old covenant. He didn't throw it out. He didn't abolish it. Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it in your place. Jesus came and he met God's perfect standard of righteousness. And then he went to the cross for all the ways that you and I don't meet his standard. So this morning, do not show up here for a list of to-dos. Show up here for a savior who announces what he's done. And he has died on the cross for your sins. He is offering you new life by faith in him and what he's done. And now we still fast. If you wanna know Jesus' answer to the question, there still is a time to fast, but it's not so that God might look down on our sacrifices and save us. It's because he already sacrificed himself and saved us. And because God has saved us, now we fast because I wanna know a God who would do that for me. I want to grow in intimacy with God through fasting for someone who would do that for me. Not so that he will love me, but because he already does. And I want to spend time with him and I want to know him and I need some water because if this is as awkward for you as it is for me with my voice, that's the, uh, <clears throat> the, uh, the gospel this morning. So if you've never received that gospel, we've got lunch afterwards. It's the perfect time to come grab me, grab one of our elders. We would love to talk to you about what Christ has done in your place. Do not keep trying to keep up this list of rules. You can't. You need something new. You need a lifeboat. You need a savior. 
And Jesus has come and he's been that savior for us. So let me pray for us and then we're gonna stream Pastor Will in for this announcement. Lord, we love you. Father, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that you did not just look up from heaven and give us a second try to be better. You did not give us another list of rules to try to maintain, but God, you gave us a substitute. You gave us a savior who came to do something new. And that new thing was to offer us a new covenant. And God, where the old covenant was unconditional or where it was conditional, where we had to do things to try to win your approval, realizing that we never could, God, this new covenant is unconditional, built on better promises because of what Jesus has done in our place. So God, if there's anyone in here that's never received the newness of the new covenant in Christ through his body broken and his blood shed for us by faith, God, I pray that you would work on their hearts and that they would not leave here without talking to someone about what you've done. Thank you for what you've done. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.